0: A Bite of Stars, A Slug of Time, and Thou.
1: You can look at this matter from a number of perspectives. From one point of view, it all began when an occasional sailor, soldier, handyman, and bum of obscure origins and indeterminate race by name Sancho Jones Chu, on an impulse, he was very impulsive, decided to consult a gypsy. The year was 1998, and the place was Houston. The day before, the LNG tanker Binivu, flying a Liberian flag, had docked in the harbor to take on a cargo of liquefied natural gas, LNG, preparatory to a transpacific voyage to Tokyo. LNG had come of age since the 1960s, and the Binevu was one of 300 ships that moved frozen cryogenic gold over the main Soon after the tanker docked, it discharged part of its crew on shore leave, including Sancho Jones Chu, and Chu departed to partake of the questionable pleasures of Houston, which left him by the following morning a little groggy and red-eyed and depressed, momentarily wondering what it was all about. And in that moment, most serendipitously, his eye fell on a clumsily painted sign. It showed the open palm of a hand— white against a red background, and below the palm black letters told him—he had to puzzle them out laboriously, being of limited education—that Madame Snaw stood ready with a psychic reading for a mere eight dollars and fifty cents, or, say, the equivalent of a one-egg breakfast with toast and coffee. He had no stomach for breakfast anyway, had never had his fortune told, had nothing else to do, and so after a moment's examination of his own palm, to see if maybe he could do the job unaided, he went through the door, releasing a clanging bell as he did so. He emerged again an hour later, twenty dollars lighter, but walking on air. He was not exactly a changed man. His eyes were still red and his breath still sour. If anything, the black stubble on his face was a little longer, but there was now a new gleam in his eye, a bounce to his step. He pushed his knit cap to a more rakish angle and broke into whistling. He whistled a new ditty called the mermaid's mother is a surefire gong. He was not a changed man, but he knew himself to be, in an obscure sort of way, a man of some mysterious importance. The gypsy had been sure of that. Framed against a black curtain, her graying hair half hid by a red silk cloth, her golden earrings a glimmer in dim light, she had taken his big rough hand into her narrow brown one and had looked at his palm with professional penetration. After a moment her dark eyes had stared up at him in puzzlement. Oh, she'd said, this is very unusual, very, very unusual. You'll... Live a very, very, very long time, Mr. Chew. You have a very unusual fate, one in ten billion. I can't say what, and I can't say how, but if you're willing, we could try the tarot and the crystal to get a little more information. So after she explained to him that she'd never seen a man whose lifeline ran all the way to the tip of his index finger... The lifeline indicates time spent in this earthly dimension, she'd said. And after they spent some time negotiating the price of tarot and crystal, and after they settled on a lump-sum fee of twenty dollars, she'd reached for the cards. The tarot confirmed the message of the palm. The gypsy was genuinely astonished by the cards. She repeatedly pointed at now this, now that part of the spread with an earring-jangling shake of her head. A famous man he was, would be, she murmured, more to herself than to him. His life, the length of it, she couldn't, know, she couldn't grasp how Mr. Chew could be so long-lived. A regular Methuselah. He wanted to know the exact year, but on that score she said the cards were silent. They turned next to the crystal. She set up the ball in the middle of a table, covered by a cloth whose edges showed the signs of the zodiac. She dimmed the lights even more and as Chu watched with a half-open mouth she went into a trance. Then slowly, in hesitant bits and pieces, she conveyed the essence of the vision. Ice, ice, cold, bitter cold, she said. In the crystal Madame Snaw saw crystals of ice. She saw or felt, she shivered at the immensity of the cold, such a depth of temperature, such an absence of heat, of warmth, that the mere observation of it all turned her lips blue in the midst of that crystalline opposite of Inferno. She thought she saw the form of Mr. Chu slowly, stiffly tumbling, and so she broke her concentration, and she summed it all up for him. Mr. Chu, she said, you'll live to an immense old age, you'll be a sensation before you're thirty, many famous scientists will seek your counsel, and you'll die some day by freezing to death. And so Chu whistled merrily as he walked. He crossed the street on a red light. Two cars bucked and screeched as they swerved to avoid running him down. He smiled at the angry honking. Nothing could harm him. He'd live to be a hundred, no doubt about it. And next year, when he turned thirty, he'd already be a sensation. As for death by freezing, well, that was a long, long ways off. He didn't wonder how he'd become a sensation, or what the famous scientists might want to know. He very seldom wondered. This morning... Momentarily, he'd wondered what it was all about, and that had been entirely sufficient for a while. Now look at the matter from another perspective, that of Captain Bartholomew Smith, a small, portly man with a neatly blocked salt-and-pepper beard. Captain Bartholomew Smith commanded the LNG tanker, Binevu. He was very close to retirement. His pension was in his pocket. He was a widower and childless. Forty years at sea had destroyed whatever enthusiasm he'd once had for oceanic. Magnificence. He longed to be free of the brine. Already his interest was elsewhere. He had a nice packet of interesting investments, some very high risk, some fairly safe. His heart was on the land, where his money was, even as he plowed Pacifica with a load of LNG. One of Captain Smith's investments was closer to his heart than any other, and as fate would have it, his favorite was also the least solvent of his ventures. It couldn't even be called a venture, truth to tell, as yet it hadn't gotten off the ground. It gave the captain many hours of thought as he paced the deck of Binevu on the way to Japan and back. He felt a certain responsibility for Eternity Incorporated being its single largest stockholder. He wanted E.I. to succeed, and not only as a money-making venture. He hoped to be one of the clients of his own company when he died. E.I. had everything. Cold storage bunkers, a laboratory and equipment. It had a front office, an answering service, and nice stationery with an impressive letterhead. It featured the mathematician's symbol for eternity, the lazy eight. E.I. had a full-time salesman, a part-time secretary, and a technical director, a certain Dr. Hatfield. Hatfield was not... A medical doctor, strictly speaking, but the state had no objection to his handling of the dead. But Eternity, Incorporated, lacked the most important ingredient of all, customers. Not a single person had signed up for frosty preservation. E.I.'s brochure had all the right blandishments. It had been prepared by a small advertising firm, another of the captain's investments. It promised resurrection from death to anyone who'd pay the price of perpetual care of his body. Perpetuity, the brochure was quick to point out, had limits. As soon as science discovered the secret to real longevity, or perhaps even to eternal life, you'll be thawed out, dear customer, made young, and sent off fresh as a daisy into a brave new world. The company had the usual startup troubles of a new technological enterprise. EI was still looking for the first one. Once they had a body in the vault, once they could augment the sales brochure with a suitable photograph, one that showed the client's serene smile without revealing his identity, others would take courage and commit themselves to lie beside the first one, awaiting the slow ripening of science. And so when a careless maintenance man, fourth class, by the name of Sancho Jones Chu, fell into an LNG tank and instantly froze to death, It happened in the Caribbean long before they reached the Panama Canal, and when Captain Bartholomew Smith had ascertained that Chu was a man of uncertain origin and indeterminate race, he wired E.I. at once. Dr. Hatfield, complete with a portable freeze chamber, met them in Panama, took charge of Chu, and flew back to Iowa the next day. Sancho Jones' Chu became an E.I. first. Over the years he was to acquire many a companion, including Captain Smith, and as time passed, they shared many strange adventures. And so there is the perspective of Father Time himself, the only person who could track that frozen cargo to eternity. E.I. went bankrupt in 2198. They couldn't wait on science any longer. Tax laws had changed, energy costs were exorbitantly high, a new religiousness had spread like a bright girdle around earth's shores, and the blandishments of survival by the mediation of science had little appeal. The community of dead passed into the possession of a cardinal of the old church newly revisited by the spirit of the Almighty, known as the Visitors. The tax laws still permitted religious groups to accumulate wealth, and the cardinal, having tired of old masters—he had the finest collection of pop art in New Columbia—now turned his acquisitive instincts towards curiosities living, dead, and in between, of which E.I.'s necropolis was one of the finest. The vault passed down through five generations of the Cardinal's family. His great-great-great-grandson had technical inclinations, a rarity in the 24th century which saw the completion of a slow relapse into superstition. Despite the family's substantial wealth, fuel was so difficult to get that the survival of the dead in the one-time E.I. warehouse was threatened. The young abbot converted the vault to run off solar energy. He developed a special mobile housing for the frozen inhabitants. It moved on wheels, but could also float like a ship. The cooling system was renewed. The whole marvelous contraption, the abbot called it the Ark of Time, was energized by a funnel-shaped flowering of panels mounted on the roof. He transported the Ark to South America so that it would never lack solar fuel. Then he abandoned it on a visitor mission to pursue other gadgets. And then came the Great Shaking in the centuries of Interregnum. The period acquired many names, including Dark Ages. Those who so named the Interregnum no longer knew that the term was already spoken for. The times were dark, so dark that even Father Time lost track of the Ark. For a long time it might have stayed on that high Andean plateau where the visitor Abbot had last seen it, or it might have been pushed or driven off the mountain, lost in the jungle, or sent out to sea, away from the ravaging radiation that claimed so much of the earth's land surface. At any rate, when the historical darkness lifted, it was the year 800 of the new reckoning, and the world burst into flower again. Father Time looked for the Ark, but couldn't see it anymore. It had vanished from its plateau. And since there was so much else to see, Father Time became distracted and forgot all about the matter. His perspective is no longer useful. The early ninth century. Epiphany of the Era of Structures They came. In fifty years they'd conquered. They lasted for an eye-wink of eternity, and then they disappeared. But, oh, what grandeur! What vitality! While they were dominant! Mankind had been given a new pulse of life. It was as if the spirit of the planet, called away for cosmic consultation, had returned of a sudden, and had reached down with a glowing finger to quicken all earthly existence once again. Structure Man lived a life of glory. He investigated all things, tried all things, dared all things. The arts, philosophy, faith, literature, architecture, science, government awoke in the ninth to a new and splendid life. The structures were an outward expression of an inner rebirth. What were these structures? They were immense vertical cities, Cities of millions flung into the sky, resting on narrow strips of coastal land, each city a mile high on a square mile of ground, held aloft by a new discovery, Gravitron Vibration. They were a magnificent response to the conditions of the time. Here was a planet with a land surface virtually destroyed by radiation, its oceans filled with piratical, treacherous, floating communities, its few plots of safe earth in the fierce possession of tribes, its erstwhile cities, ashes, and rubble. And then came the structures. They rose up high, shining columns by the sea, so high they swayed in the wind, and culture was reborn, Within them, they rapidly gained the admiration of floaters, of tribes. The first supplied fish protein, the second helium, to cool the great gravitron drums. There was a crackling tension between structure and hinterland, and from that tension was born a new civilization. So much for the setting. And now for a new perspective, that of a representative structure man, a certain Dr. Fist, bright-eyed, vibrant, and insatiably curious, a master of many sciences and not a few arts, a consultant to government, a poet of some note. He had blue eyes, a blonde beard, and a bald head. He laughed a lot and moved about in heavy robes of red, always in the company of at least five graduate students, at least four of them female. The doctor had an interest in everything, but his interest in the matter at hand arose from the perusal of some ancient documents, an entire file cabinet filled with records of the old church newly revisited by the Spirit of the Almighty. Papers miraculously preserved by the grace of that almighty spirit and discovered by a male graduate student on a lead-suited excursion into the radiation belt. And there, amidst arid sermons, construction estimates, missionary reports, and other odds and ends which only the voracious curiosity of structure man could endow with interest, Dr. Fist, who was, needless to say, expert in all the dead languages, came upon a slender folder about the arc of time. Appended to some plans, photos, and a press clipping or two, he also found a xerographic copy of a very old encyclopedia article. It described the quaint custom of some ancients of freezing their dead, thinking they could be revived someday in the far distant future. The issue captured Dr. Fist's fancy. All issues did, in fact, and Structure Man had energy to deal with all of them in an admirable way. Fist held forth about it to his coterie, ''Imagine, children,'' he cried, eyes aflame with wondrous zeal, ''somewhere on this planet there might still be frozen bodies a thousand years old, and we might succeed in reviving them. We would, God willing, we would, if only we could lay our hands on the ark of time.'' The probabilities were entirely against the project. The great shaking had made the foundations of the earth to tremble, Eight hundred years of unattended floating or standing would ruin even the steel arc with its clever flower-topped solar energy pack. And even if the arc were found, why would Dr. Fist succeed where all others had failed? But precisely in this regard did Structure Man deviate from the pedestrian average of mankind. He bet against the probabilities, and he often won. So it was that Fist acted. He posted a large reward and he sent out word to the tribes of Hinterland and to the men on the piratical floating ships. He wanted frozen bodies. He wanted the Ark. A picture of it went out from his structure by messenger along the helium pipeline. He won the first part of his bet. Ten years later, a tribesman drove the Ark into Drinaldo's structure and asked for Dr. Fist. He had a faded copy of the notice and of the drawing. He wanted his reward. The Ark was battered. Its belly bore a fat belt of barnacles. Its body was dented. One of its solar panels had been broken, but it was still more or less intact, a whale of a truck or vessel. Dr. Fist accepted the Ark as if it had been his rightful due. He rubbed his hands, his interest as lively as ever. The graduate students were a different crop, but just as eager as the old ones. Fist opened the door of the Ark saw the traceries of frozen air around the edges of the door, slammed it shut, nodded, and told someone to pay the tribesman. He ran off to make the preparations in a swish of red robes. Fist also won the second part of his bet, at least in part. The Ark held forty bodies. Along the way, sixteen had been lost in ways that were mercifully hidden in the dark recesses of the great famine that had accompanied the great shaking. They set forth in a great laboratory reeking of formaldehyde. They shared space with an anatomy project where structure man learned once more how man was made, a knowledge that had been lost. They began with the old ones and saved the young to the last. They thawed them out, all at once, limb by limb, belly first, brain first. They gave them new blood. They shocked them with current. They massaged, pummeled, steamed, roasted. But nothing happened. Body after body was transferred from the right side of the hall to the left to serve the cause of science at last. Science learned that ancient man was just like modern man, in all respects that mattered. But dental science had something of a boost. The ancient dentures caused quite a furor. Structure man didn't give up. Fist studied live and frozen cells under a microscope. He conducted tests. He electroprobed, irradiated. Gravitron irradiation seemed to help. The cells responded. Structure man had this advantage. He understood radiation like no other humanity, before or since. Gravibes were truly a new phenomenon. But then, at last, spurred forward by small signs of success, Fist and his students made a key discovery. All of these men and women from the past had died of organic malfunctions. Fist could reconstitute them, in a manner of speaking, but in essence he labored to make fresh corpses from stale ones. The people were dead, and nothing helped, nothing at all. Their livers were gone, their hearts had cracked, their brains were diseased. That is to say, all but one, all but one. That one was Sancho Jones Chu. Clipped to his ear was a blue tag that revealed his name and the date of his entombment October 8th, 1998. He was the oldest of the ancients, yet, in a perverse way, he seemed the soundest of them all, fresh as a daisy. He died very quickly, the doctor decided. His organs were in immaculate state. His heart was strong, his brain solid, his lungs seemingly ready to breathe. His cells, much like those of the others, were ruptured from frost expansion, but for that Fist had found a remedy. Trembling with expectation, they carried Chu to the irradiation tube. Gently they placed him on metal springs. Gingerly they shoved him in, locked the door. Fist looked about at admiring faces and threw the switch. Five minutes later, with a tremendous banging and roaring, he nearly destroyed the delicate instruments. Chu came alive, and the rest is a disappointing footnote to history. We can view it all from a multiple perspective, that of structure sages who came from all over to question this phenomenon of the past. Historians, linguists, musicians, doctors, engineers, military men— they came erudite, eager, curious. They came to see the only man who had, until that time, and so far as we know, until ours, made a long trip into the future. They came to see Sancho Jones Chu, time traveler. And they learned nothing, despite their superior linguistic skills and mastery of interrogation. Chu had almost nothing to contribute Yes, he sang for them a ditty or two, like the mermaid's mother is a surefire gong. He told them about LNG tankers, but structure men knew all about cryogenics. Their Gravitron drums, after all, were cooled by liquid helium. He described the cities he had known, but through his eyes, New York, Saigon, Vladivostok, Tokyo, Hamburg, all had a certain seamy sameness. They tried, the sages, they tr- tried valiantly, but Sancho Jones' Chu was equal to the challenge. Even Structure Man gave up on him. The flood of delegations shrunk to a dribble, a drop, and then no one came anymore. Chu drifted off slowly. He janitored for the institute, where Dr. Fist had one of his centers of investigation, but then Chu grew restless. He'd always been a wanderer, a rolling stone he was, and gathered no moss. He learned enough of the language to get along and didn't wonder much about the shape of the world because he simply didn't wonder. He worked his way down through the levels of Drinaldo structure, from level 169 to the subterranean foundations where Gravitron drums turned into helium. Chu had a way, like all the rest of us, of finding his own level. He got work as a maintenance man. He did small chores, fixed plumbing... Over time, he became something of a figure among his companions by dint of a strange accent and a penchant for clowning. He liked to show his courage and invulnerability. After all, he'd lived to be a hundred. And then one day, he clowned about near one of the grav drums. They'd pulled the insulating covers off the pits to find a leak. Sancho Jones Chew tightrope-walked across a beam over the pit. He turned to grin at his frowning, angrily shouting comrades. He lost his balance fell into the liquid helium, and instantly froze to death. He was 1,229 years old. Such is fate. Hello, that was Such is Fate, written by Arson Darnay in 1974. With me to discuss it is my fellow host, Mark Sinker, and our special guest, Magnus Anderson. Mark, we've covered some of the giants of the field in this uh, in this program: um, Isaac Asimov, Frank Herbert, uh, etc. Now, Arson Darnay. This is not um, to cast aspersions or anything, um, because after all, we've chosen to to talk about his book here. He's not one of these giants.
0: He, he doesn't seem to be. No, uh, this is a very nice story, and I'm I'm delighted we're doing it. But um, all our research is <laughs> uh, by which. You know, we all know what we mean. But in fact, the books I have as well, as well as Google, seem to turn up very little by way of biographical information. There is a person of the same name who seems to have made a career working in um, statistical <laughs> compendia, which that's all we know about
1: him. So, you know, so after his, his science fiction career, it's it's possible that this guy... Uh, started writing books about statistical. What, about well,
0: I, you know, I mean, it may even have been at the same time. That's for all I know. Yeah. I, I not
1: like econo- don't. economic indicators and things like yeah, that.
0: Yeah, it seems to be. And so, you know, if if there's any listeners out there who know, uh, including Arsene himself, w- with a bit of um, good fortune, then then we'd be delighted to know a little more. Um, I, th- I think he w- he was writing at a time when the the greats were somewhat fixed and a little bit before an era where suddenly a new generation arrived. So, you know, it might just be the bad luck of that. Um, I think Galaxy... This is, is this from Galaxy?
1: This is from Worlds of If. Oh,
0: I don't <laughs> uh, know anything about Worlds the, of uh, If.
1: <laughs> the September-October uh, <clears throat> issue of Worlds of If from 1974.
0: Right. But the mid-'70s was a sort of lull, really, because the 60s had been so um, productive that uh, a huge number of people were in place, either quite elderly or or sort of n- no longer young and upcoming, but 10 years after young mm-hmm. and upcoming. Mm-hmm. And the Cyberpunk people weren't wouldn't be along for another four or five years. So,
1: so let's get into the story a little bit. Magnus, what... Tell us what happens in this story. Um, I think it's, it's actually probably
2: one of, the, one of the most straightforward, one of the most accessible stories and the ones that, that have been read in this series. It's, um, I see it as a story of uh, a prophecy and the fulfillment of that, that prophecy. Yes. Um, the the actual plot is that this uh, sort of slightly anchorless character called Sancho Jones Chew, uh, who he is the central character, but he's not sort of the, um, the 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 activity character, if you like, apart from the very beginning, and the very end. I don't think he, we actually <laughs> ever hear him say anything in n- the story. No, he sort of thinks to himself about whether he wants breakfast, but he doesn't. He doesn't sort of explain to anyone anything about himself particularly. Um, he uh, he one day whilst uh, he's an itinerant sailor, well, he's not not itinerant outside his ship he 's just he will go where he 's taken and he uh, one day when when at port he decides to visit a, uh, a fortune teller and the fortune teller is astonished by the implied longevity of of this character because of the length of his his lifeline and yes. and so insists um, with his agreement that uh, that she find out more about him and discovers various uh, predictions, which are essentially that he's going to live a very long life, he's shortly going to become extremely famous, and uh, that he's also uh, going to die a blizzardy and ice-filled death. And um, he thinks about parts one and two, and apparently thinks that they compensate for part three. And so on balance, he's happy with, with this. And so with a certain amount of cheer, he then immediately goes and kills himself by falling in some liquid nitrogen. And uh, and that that's sort of like the first part of his his plot ended, um, uh, as you might expect. Um, and it's also part three of the the prophecy fulfilled. And then, in order to understand why he's able to still go on to to fulfil the first couple of parts, uh, you you then encounter a series of other characters. You encounter a chap called Captain Bartholomew Smith, who is a a kind of entrepreneur who's invented a cryogenic freezing organisation. He's looking for.
0: It's cryonic. Is cryogenic it? is a completely different thing to cryonic.
2: Wait, explain okay. the difference. <laughs> yeah. <this> Sorry. <laughs> explain Cry- the difference
0: cryogenic is the study of everything that is very, very cold, uh-huh. and it is a common misnomer <laughs> for cryonics, which means which is a made-up non-science for removing <laughs> large amounts of money from gullible people by freezing <laughs> their dead bodies for the rest of time, or for a couple of weeks and then chucking now the remains into the bin no, and mag- not mag- telling anyone. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, let's, let's just, Magnus, with your permission, let me just st- stop your synopsis sure. short and just talk about about this for a second. The, now, these these organizations actually do exist. They certainly do. And, a lot of and Walt Disney... No. no? Another,
0: another, <laughs> another urban myth. Walt Disney was cremated, you know, just like any normal person. Oh, really? Person. He was cremated but in he, ice. He is, he is the most <laughs> famous urban legend. Uh,
1: th- <laughs> to have his head... Now, now the, the story that I know is that Walt Disney had his head frozen in order to uh, someday, when science advanced, uh, they would be able to reattach his head to some youthful body and revive uh, hi- hi- him. And that's that's the story that I know. You're saying that's not true.
0: Well, uh, the, the uh, information that I have, shall we say, is mm-hmm. that, in fact, um, well, no such thing happened to him. I see. There are people, definitely, that this has happened to, um, but most of them aren't terribly well known. Yeah. Ted Williams seems to be the most famous actual real. Uh, I didn't a,
1: actually know that he's a, he's a, he's a, was a famous uh, baseball player. Yeah. He was a, yeah. Played for the Boston Red Sox, he was the last batter to hit 400. If any of you have <laughs> know what the significance, well,
0: he, of is. he may be um, <laughs>
1: going to hit the, his 400 the, plus. Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> he, he has the future, all the future to wait yeah. to hit 400. It's, to it's,
1: so, so these <laughs> little <laughs> sort of, sort of uh, maybe uh, ne'er do well organizations, uh, companies exist out there trying to convince people, hopefully rich people, I suppose, to freeze their bodies. Uh, up either upon death or shortly before death, I suppose, um, in the hopes that someday they can be thought out. And that's not cryogenics, that's cryonics. Cryonics, you're okay.
0: yes. And it it, it was actually the idea of it, or some version of the idea of it, was first um, proposed by, of all people, Benjamin Franklin. Um, but actual... Uh, because he thought of ac- everything, ev- everything in the world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so it's not that surprising. <laughs> um but the the science the idea of the science of it didn't really come on till, online till the 60s when people started thinking well we have this super cold uh, in principle can can keep uh, organic matter um in the same state for as long as the fridge is switched on mm-hmm. and um and yeah companies uh, I, there were sort of proposals in science magazines from the early 60s and then companies started to appear in uh, in the late 60s and, and the early 70s. Mm-hmm. And there was a big scandal at the a- end of the 70s where a what particular was a- company was found to have not kept its electricity bills paid and, <laughs> and its clients were, um, were less likely to be resuscitated <laughs> in perfect condition.
1: <laughs> well, this is the first question always, isn't it, when you think about something like this? What happens to the company if it's, if it's just uh, you know, some business... Um, and the same question, maybe from another perspective, co- comes along in lots of other areas of life. Like if uh, if if Microsoft went bankrupt tomorrow, you know, how would anybody run their computers after a while? Um, if the business goes bust, what happens to all these frozen and this to all these frozen bodies? And this story sort of speaks to that yeah, a little it, bit. It, it, it? actually yeah.
0: specifically, I mean, in a way, I think that's one of the things that he, he quite nicely sort of thinks about, which is that an eccentric. Um, child of a religious organization um who likes collecting weird stuff and puts solar panels in and puts it on top of a mountain and then it gets forgotten for 700 years or something but it still kind of works so so it takes care of that problem by being uh, i suppose off the grid Mm -hmm. in a particular Mm -hmm. way in the things called the arc of time which sounds to me like a phrase which I've heard elsewhere. <laughs> uh,
1: um. Yeah, so, so 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 this company's so th- this company's uh, holdings, as it were, get um, bought up by this curio, this religious curio collector. So at some point uh, after um, the society has changed in many or, ways, or during, uh, yeah, or, but yes, during, yeah, and um, he sort of forgets about it. Now, Magnus, can, can you pick up uh, there? Um, what happens in the rest of the the story? He creates this arc of time yeah. and. Mm-hmm.
2: And so that's um, an, an important aspect of that that particular phase. Is that it's it's also a broader observation of the the sort of the the, the changing cultural cycle of of the global economy and uh, and the, the religious aspect of it is, is becoming dominant at that time. And then um, it's implied that this is. Uh, uh, this arc of time is just floating in the sea for for decade upon decade, and the the technology which keeps it going, these sort of solar panels, is uh, remarkably intact. By the time that another society has has become born, a kind of rebirth, as it's called in the story, where um, it's called the uh, the birth of structures or something. I'm not, mm-hmm. not quite sure what they uh, what they mean that these structures are the buildings that they're talking about. But but society has been through a devastated period, and when it comes back. Uh, there's a uh, an enthusiast on the, on what for him is archaeology and he finds out that there is this legend, this myth of this arc of time which has lots of frozen people in it and he's extremely keen to go and find it and sci- science, he believes, is now at the point where he'd be able to revive and resuscitate and, and get these people back and fulfil the job which uh, cryonics uh, would claim, you know, probably against their own hope at the time when these companies were set up, to um, uh, to fulfil. Um, and so uh, he finds this, and he starts one by one unfreezing all of the people. He starts with the oldest ones and finds that he's able to successfully resuscitate them, but whatever it was that killed him first time around is still knocking them off, and so he sort of brings them back to life only to find that they're, they're, they're dying again. Uh, apart from this one guy who appeared to remarkably have volunteered to just be instantly frozen in the prime of his life, and they resuscitate him and find that he is... He is Absolutely unable to tell them anything about what it was that was good about his society where they came from. This archaeologist is very disappointed, and so are all his acolytes. Um, and this guy returns basically to his previous life and becomes once again an engineer, hanging around all of this liquid nitrogen, which they they still have lots of. Have gone back to having lots of in this society. Uh, and uh, at the end of the story, slips, freezes, and dies once again. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: so the, the, this this idea of being uh frozen for a very long time and then brought back to life or dormant in some way and bring being brought back to life is a i mean i would say that that's a it's a recurring theme in civilization for thousands of years really yeah
0: there there's stories um you know in in uh greek greek folk to, not yeah greek folk tales Latin, uh roman folk tales chinese mm-hmm. folk tales the um <clears throat> the famous uh, story of Rip Van Winkle, which is um, an early, early uh, short story in uh, American fiction, Washington Irving, written by Washington Irving. Uh, one suggestion is it derives from his uh, Orkney, his own Orkney heritage. His his dad was from the Orkneys, which I didn't know till I found it out earlier today. And uh, there's a version of the Thomas the Rhymer. Um, myth in uh, Orkneyan legend which is of uh, someone who went to visit the trolls and have parties with them and when he came back it was 30 years later or 70 years later or 100 years later and those kind of stories where something happens where time goes at a different speed because you fall asleep or because you're enchanted, is that's an old old idea it's it, it's quite a straightforward idea about um an imaginable time shift to, ex- to make a joke of or an allegory of how society's changed.
2: But an important aspect of them is that either the protagonist, the person that's actually taking that on, or the, the society he reaches are, are fascinated by the other one. And in this story, that doesn't seem to be the case. I mean.
0: <laughs> I, I think what's interesting about this story is it's really a combination of two different. It's a combination of the Rip Van Winkle idea, which is. Mm-hmm. A, a shift I mean rip van Winkle 's shift was across the American Revolution. he fell asleep before it and woke up after it and society had changed in quite a big way, but over actually it 's only twenty years he was asleep, but in this case it 's nearly a thousand years, and in fact, I think it's more than a thousand mm. years and um it uh locks into another stream of stories, which is the it is known as the future history or future fictional chronicle. Genre which um, is is also quite a common one in science fiction um where instead of uh, a fiction of um where the protagonist is is a person, the protagonist is a civilization or all civilizations all human civilizations as they progress across many millennia. So that it's it's um, a genre in which a a paragraph can begin a thousand years past or (laughs) ten
1: thousand years past. Now, is there anything? Is there any any other field of writing besides science fiction where you see a jump like this?
0: Well, I guess there there might be ghost stories, and in, in a way, the the Rip Van Winkle story and stories about mummies and things like that. I suppose you could say. There's a sort of crossover there.
2: Well, you also get these um, kind of genre, <laughs> uh, generation-spanning historical genres and so on. And there's this one, I think it's called Sarum or something like that, which was set around the creation of Stonehenge. And that one did, it was supposedly genuine and historical and it was about the same family, but you would get literally a century's jump between one chapter and the next one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, but it, it all feels like it's a fantasy story, even if it's, if, if it's supposedly grounded in reality. I mean, what it's not doing is running like a novel and following a particular character and so on.
0: Yeah, and, and I think the character is the whole of a culture, mm-hmm. and the or of the culture's sort of genealogy, if you like, so that a particular idea of the civilization grows old and dies, and then its successor, its child, or whatever, takes over and goes off in another direction.
1: So, what are the particular uh, ideas about c- human civilization that we see in this story? About it, the what, well, what kinds the, of death the, it has and what kinds of rebirth the it has. the
0: the, ver- the very clear one that it it um, picks up on is the idea that um, it it takes a I suppose what you call a nineteenth century idea of progress going sort of steadily upwards and says no it it comes to to stopping points and falls back far below where it had got to and uh, he specifically makes a um, a joke about the idea that not only do they call this stopping point the dark ages but they don't even know that there's already been another dark ages which was when the the roman empire kind of fell to pieces and what succeeded was centuries of you know chaos and confusion bad records and whatever until the next um um so oh, bad
1: records you been- <laughs> i,
0: I mean yes i meant bad documentation rather than <laughs> rather than uh, decades of indie so you <laughs>
2: yeah it's, it's saying not only that, but also that it seems to be cyclical. There's some sort of uh, rise and fall of civilizations. This is following, if you like, one undulation, it's following one um, what's the word, one amplitude. Of uh, of society's um, uh, uh, fall and rise in this case, and so for the for the protagonist, uh, to the extent he's the protagonist, what he's finding is that the world he's waking up in is, you know, it's different and it's newer and it's got different technologies and so on. But it's not completely different to the one he left behind. Even though during that time there was a completely different society, which which was around, and in fact two or three are sort of implied in in the uh, in the story. You know, short as it is.
0: What's what's interesting in a way is that the narrator of the story actually knows more than anyone in the story, which is obviously in this genre is not a particularly unusual idea because you have to have someone telling this vast arc of tale, which includes bits where nobody knew what was going on and presumably actually the story can't be properly told and this story couldn't be properly told because the only person who can tell it is either Sancho Jones Chu, who doesn't know anything about it, or the people who've revived him, who are asking him to explain stuff that he doesn't know
1: about? It lends this really interesting quality to the narration, I think, because the it, it's it's so encompassing the omniscience of the narrator that it's even it even encompasses Father Time. Mm-hmm. Even but fi- not even Father Time knows as much as this as this narrator <laughs> does. So you get this you get this this very interesting kind of detachment. Um, in a way, from the from the story, you don't get into the nitty gritty details of, of of life. It's it's this unbelievably encompassing um, vision, which I think to me lends a kind of a kind of dry ironic distance mm-hmm. from everything. Yeah, very much. I thought that in this one, the
2: um, uh, Chu is he's. he's only partly a character. He's mainly the MacGuffin. He's actually an object which drives through the story. But he's... Um, the, mainly it's the, how the characters relate to him. And even right from the start, it sort of doesn't really identify where he's from and what he is and how, wh- what he's up to and so on. And so indeterminate origin. Yeah, anyway. absolutely. Um, and so he's, he's sort of ankylous and he's, he's, um, he's, he's a floating character and then he literally becomes a, a floating object in, in the story. And, and he's uh, intended to just sort of like... Go Go from from the start to the finish without ever being explored as a character.
0: Well, what I think is one of the th- in the Thomas the Rhymer... or a little bit in the Rip Van Winkle stories, there's a um, an intended poignancy, which is that you wake up and actually everything you knew, including people you loved, aren't there anymore. And that um, that works if you're someone who is very kind of connected and plugged into a, a specific world. But, but but this protagonist is, is really kind of drifting on the surface of it. He, he's not self-reflective. He seems perfectly happy with being, you know, the, the geezer who's climbing around in front of his, mate, his workmates, whether it be in the year 3000 and whatever or the year 1998. He's quite happy to be that, but he doesn't really think forwards or backwards at all. And so there's a... There's a poignancy about the lack of poignancy (laughs) in terms of his own um, perspective, which is that, you know, he's completely wrong about his own destiny. Um, The gypsy is absolutely right, but in that usual mysterious way of it being incredibly ambiguous and misleading. It's interesting that the two, sci- the two key scientific, if that's the right word, are cryonics, which is not a science at all, and palmistry, which is, which is yeah. obviously, it is a, a, an old-fashioned and very well-established science, but it's certainly no more of a science than cryonics.
1: You're being very dismissive of Gravitron building. <laughs> but yeah, all, all the things that would usually give this kind of uh, being asleep and then waking up story its, it's sort of interest and power he's deliberately taken away by making the the Sancho Jones Q the kind of guy that he is. And like I think like you were like you were saying, it's a uh, it's um it's sort of it's a case for being it's a case for society and it's a case for being social, um, in a way because here's what happens when when you're not plugged into in anything, when you have no relationship, well, no
0: I'm not sure if it I you know I think he has a perfectly fine life. I'm not sure that it's not a case. It's not a case against the way he's lived his life. That's he's true. A, that's true. He's yeah. had a perfectly the, the time he's had. He wasn't unhappy during it.
1: That's right. And yeah. uh, he's the happiest character, isn't it? Doctor Fist and and, 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 <laughs> and the and the structure men are very disappointed at his lack of 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 uh, of interest in the texture of life. But that's true for, for for him. It, it doesn't uh, it doesn't matter at all. What do we make of Dr. Fist and the structure men, by the way? They're, they're renaissance
2: men, and it, I, I, is the impression I get. I think that they're supposed to be perceived as that. And they, they think quite a lot of themselves. I think it doesn't occur to them there might be a better, te- better society or a better technology on the way, which can do more for these people they're bumping off since they, they revive I think them. This, mm. The
0: funny thing is that I think that, that it, what it does is it actually reveals that in a way the people who know a tremendous amount and have... You know, it says he has all all the pa- Earth's past languages, and you know, as well as being great scientist and being able to essentially revive the dead, or not the dead, but yeah. but bring cryonically frozen <laughs> people back to life, which is an achievement in itself. He he's obviously he has a lot of strings to his bow, but in a sense, he's not actually terribly much less parochial than uh, than Chew
1: is. And Why do you say that? Well because
0: he he doesn't have he doesn't have a as um a sense of this vastness of time he 's very caught in his time and the projects of his time as well actually he may know everything about his time and be on top of that game, but all that could pass also and that that's and I think that's really the the story of these kind of stories is. This none of this lasts, and the things that you think will last most are just as likely to be the things which vanish completely so that no one even remembers them.
1: Magnus, you said that um, prophecies can go in only go one of five ways. <laughs> Uh, fi- what are those five ways? What, well, you, what did you mean by that? Um,
2: I, I, this is pretty general and I expect to be, um, this to be disputed. But I thought that uh, of the five ways, the, the only one which I'm really certain happens lots is a prophecy doesn't come true. And of the other four, you can have the prophecy um, coming true in a good way. And the prophecy coming true in a way which is uh, factually completely consistent with everything that was presented in the prophecy and yet is actually very unfortunate for the protagonist or or somewhere in between those two, but let's just say those two categories. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm, each of mm -hmm. those two categories is split into two as well Okay, because it can be that the prophecy came true by accident or the prophecy came true because the fortune teller is a brilliant prophet. And in this story, it's never for a second doubted. I never detected anywhere that it was implied that the prophecy was anything other than completely accurate. The um, Chu thinks it is, the fortune teller thinks it is, and the narrator sort of never disputes it, always says, yeah, it's going to happen.
0: It, well, it, it's, a d- it's a device to keep Chu <laughs> in... He, he, he has no reason to actually think at all about he doesn't have to make decisions and so his commitment to this what he's been told which is absolute um is is the thing which which um points him in a particular direction and it's almost it's a it's the big well it's such is fate the irony of the story is that it does all come true it's nothing like What he expected, but it doesn't matter in the (laughs) slightest because he never really thinks very much about it anyway and he's had a pretty good time.
2: Well, yeah, the the only narrative tension is how is it going to play out? I mean, it's sort of implied that he's going to live for a very, very long time. (laughs) and that he's going to become famous and then, then die. And the, the sort of the trick, the only real twist it plays is this sort of dummy card that you assume that the, the prophecy has been fulfilled when he dies a frozen death, and then it turns out in a, in a great comic moment that he does it for a second time, and this time, well, it may not be final, you just, you know, the story stops there.
0: I think that the element of um, structural comedy, if that's the right way of putting it, is that... We've been saying that the ca- the main character is, in a sense, the civilization, and that civilization itself is actually not any much more it, it's as hapless as chew is when it comes down to it. And that's the the joke of this whole story is that um you know cities may rise and fall, cultures may rise and fall, but in a sense, they still at some point walk. Across a tightrope over some liquid helium, <laughs> in a silly mood, and fall in, and and nobody can do anything about it because they thought they were doing something completely different.
1: And uh, for all for all of the author's protestations that the structure men are this brilliant new race of beings, or whatever, I,
0: I think he's been quite sarcastic. You see, when you're saying that, yeah. I, I don't think he has particularly high opinion. I mean, he likes writing up the sort of brilliance of their thing in order to bring it down.
1: Because they, they're they, they're everything that Doctor Fist does, and I mean it's all very recognizable, isn't it? He has a has a thing for young female graduate students, and he, <laughs> you know. He thinks he's he's the business, and you know it's it's, it's all very human, so very recognizable. Yeah, that's the the consistent point in the story is what it is that
2: humans get up to and how they behave, but not the circumstances in which they do it.
0: And I, I yeah, you see, one of the things I was I was wondering about this is that this these these sort of march of civilization stories came to be fashionable probably in the 1890s um wells wrote one which i can't quite remember the name of and there's an implied one obviously in the time machine where he goes far into human future meets the morlocks and the eloys and then goes even further and i think he goes 30 million years into the future in the last scene
1: so that's a jump
0: and mm-hmm. and there's nothing left. There's some crab creature which crawls along the beach and dies, and then he, and the sun is, is going out. So he that goes that wasn't home. the
2: original ending. He originally wrote one where a centipede eats the last ever Eloy, and he witnesses it. And they had to cut that out because they thought that was too dreadful an end for the human race.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, the, but there was a whole series of these kind of things, and my... Uh, suspicion is that the, there were a, a lot of philosophers at the time who weren't writing fiction but were writing kind of speculative you know, what will happen to the human race, Nietzsche's the most obvious one, Oswald Spengler what's he called Oswald? Spengler anyway, <laughs> I don't remember his true. first name <laughs> um, who, who were sort of thinking well, you know, we're at this point which we think of as the as, as this great point in society but you know, things could go hideously wrong. I mean, Nietzsche said there's a big, big catastrophe coming. And he his uh, idea for the shape of the future was this very strange idea of eternal return, which is essentially that everything that's happened just keeps on happening in a big cycle so that the whole of time just goes back on a loop. And what we have to do is... Is be cool with that because that's all. It doesn't get any better. It doesn't get any worse, but it doesn't get any better. And in a funny way, I think a lot of these the comical stories are actually a bit about that, which mm. is that mm-hmm. that culture seems to rise to these great heights, but people are kind of just the same. They're just a bit goofy, and they have whether they're um, the pretentious professors at the top of the of the um, the at the apex of the culture, or whether they're people like Chu, that it's all the same. It doesn't really matter how mighty the empire is. People don't change, and it's sort of, as a result, it all comes back to dust.
1: Well, it's a, it's a good way to illustrate that by having the protagonist be this guy, Chu, who is not uh, you know, particularly, who's uh, ex- not ex- really extraordinary in any way. It reminds me of, a, of another um, science fiction, piece of science fiction, a contemporary piece of science fiction, which does which has a similar kind of protagonist who has suffered a similar kind of fate, and that's, fu- that's Futurama, whose main <laughs> whose main character gets, um, well, I don't know what uh, i he, he, he gets chronically frozen. He gets <laughs> chronically frozen, <laughs> yes. right? Yeah,
0: he falls into a, he's delivering a pizza, which is a prank delivery. Icy Wiener is the person <laughs> he's delivering it to. And he falls into the <laughs> thing, gets frozen for a th- exactly a thousand years and pops out and... And, yeah, discovers that the future is, in some ways, amazingly different. You can fly to the stars. Um, there are he- there are aliens on television, robots everywhere. But in lots of ways, it's incredibly similar. <laughs> it, and his understanding, when people quiz him about the 20th century, he doesn't know anything about it. He's an idiot. <laughs> I mean, he's quite a likable idiot, but he doesn't know anything about his uh, his... His um, versions of the world we know, because we're also living in it, are
2: just stupid. In the first episode of Futurama, where he actually does get frozen, it portrays in the window outside him uh, the uh, decline and rise again of the civilization twice, and each time it's due to an alien
1: invasion. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so so like Sancho Jones Q, uh, the hero of Futurama... Luckily, doesn't have to suffer through these these uh, stages of utter desolation mm-hmm. and and rebuilding. He gets to just sort of skip to the to the to the bit that where things have been have been. <laughs> built well, back I up think here. in it, you know,
0: I mean, Futurama is it again? It's a device for producing. It's a, a parody of lots of science fiction ideas, and each one is it's a different um, joke or elaboration of a joke in each uh, episode. But insofar as it has a message, which I don't think is very far, it, it is that, that you know, the way people suffer is actually on quite a small, mundane scale, the scale of their own life, and that these big stories are kind of over everyone's head. Even when they're actually happening around us, it's still just kind of little. By con- By contrast to the fall of empires, it's little stuff, which you actually suffer about, like... Your girlfriend doesn't love you or the pizza you were delivering is a prank pizza.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Magnus Anderson and Mark Sinker. I'm Elisha Sessions. This has been a bite of stars, a slug of time and now.